Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them to Genesis 6, 9, and we're going to be through 7, 24, as you just heard read. I need us to know that in many ways, this is a multi-part sermon of what's clearly one unified text. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll remind us again of the word toledot. Anyone remember what that Hebrew word means? The generations of. We've learned that these toledotes are the mile markers throughout the whole book of Genesis. We saw that the last toledot went from 5-1 to 6-8. That was one chapter of the narrative that should be read and interpreted together. Well, where does our text begin today? Look at chapter 6, verses 9. These are are the generations of Noah. Where's our next Toledot? Chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. In other words, this whole section goes together. Chapter 6, verse 9 through 10, 1. But we'll be breaking it down into four parts to try to mine all that's there in the generations of Noah. But before we dig into this part, I want us to zoom out and show us Moses' main point in writing this section of Genesis. And we can see this through the intentional use of structure. Moses uses what's known as a chiasm. Anyone remember what that is? A chiasm in its simplest terms, is a text sandwich. You've got bread, bread, cheese, cheese, and then right in the middle, the meat, which is the main point of the narrative. So before we look at the structure, I'll raise the question. What is the main point of Noah's story and the narrative of the flood? Do we know what this text means? This is one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. It's in every children's book. If you're not a Christian, you probably even know this story. It's familiar. But do we know what it means? What's the main point? Is it judgment? Well, there's a lot of that in this passage. But that's not the main point. The main point is Noah's salvation and how to be saved from God's just judgment. Let's look at the overall structure here. Alan Ross so helpfully charts it out this way, and I'm not going to read through uh, all of this, but right in the middle of the narrative in 8 chapter 1 is the center, is the meat in between the bread and the cheese. God remembers Noah. God remembers Noah. So in the middle of that chiastic structure, that's what we have. And here's what I want us to see and to know here. While this is absolutely a historical narrative, we'll see that in the text as we walk through it, it's intentionally crafted yet again to teach us theological truth. Moses isn't just writing stream of consciousness about everything that happened. No, 
He's telling historical truth in a highly stylized way to zero in on Noah's salvation. If we miss that, we miss Moses' main point, even though there are many other truths in this text. Sidney Gradanus, he writes that the main point of this text is this. He says, Even as God judges the world for human sin and violence, in his grace he continues his kingdom on earth by making a new start with Noah, his family, and selected animals. I think that's a helpful lens for us to view this text through this morning. So with all of that in mind, let's dive in. Our two main points for today's sermon are these. Point one, God sees. Point two, God saves. So point one, God sees. What's Moses doing as he's writing this narrative? Well, one truth that we're meant to see is that this story in Genesis 6 parallels the creation story in Genesis 1. Remember that? God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good over and over and over again. We saw God hovering over the face of the waters. We saw him giving life and breath to all flesh. Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, we read, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. Do you see that? God is creating, and he's seeing that everything is good. He separates the waters under and the waters above. But we know where the story went, don't we? Genesis chapter 3. Mankind sinned and rebelliously disobeyed God. Because of sin, everything that was good is now unraveling and broken. That sin that began in the garden wouldn't stay there. It spread. It spun out of control. The last several weeks, we've seen sin getting worse and worse and worse on the face of the earth. And now, here in Genesis 6, look at how the world is described repetitively. Corrupt and violent. Corrupt and violent. Again, Moses isn't haphazard in how he writes. Seven times in this larger narrative, he uses the Hebrew word for corrupt. He's making a point with repetition. And I want to return to a point that we discussed a couple weeks ago. Chapter 6, verse 7. We read, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. The question was raised concerning God's fairness in all of this. Is God just being capricious or throwing a temper tantrum? No. No, he's not. We can't actually naturally see this in the English, but the Hebrew root words translated corrupt and destroyed 
are the same word throughout our text. What Moses wants us to know here is that the punishment matches the crime. God's going to destroy what's corrupt. In fact, he's going to destroy what's already destroying itself. It's like Romans chapter 1, where God gives them up to their own sin. God is destroying those who have already destroyed themselves. In other words, sin is self-destructive. God's judgment isn't haphazard here. It's not more than what humanity deserved. And in a strange way, I want us to see that even in this damning judgment of mankind, there's hope for us. God isn't blind or aloof. He's not that kind of a God. Do you see in this text that just like in Genesis 1, God sees. God sees. Look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Evil doesn't go unnoticed. When we think about atrocities in human history, like the Holocaust, we rightly recoil at the evil there, and we think to ourselves, wasn't anyone paying attention? Did anyone see? Was anyone willing to act in the face of evil? Genesis chapter 6 through 9 telling us very clearly, God sees. He's not aloof or indifferent to evil. He won't permit corruption and evil to rule forever. He sees, he cares, and he will act. He'll bring accountability for sin, wickedness, and evil. And that accountability will be just 100% of the way. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So in the same way that God saw good in creation that he has created, he sees evil and moves toward decreation. The flesh that he created and gave breath to in Genesis 1, he'll destroy. The waters that he separated in Genesis 1, he'll unleash. God sees corruption and evil on the earth. But corruption isn't all that God sees on earth. He also sees one man, a righteous man. A man who was prophesied to bring relief and rest. A man named Noah. What does God see and what does God say about Noah here? Look at the very first verse, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Important word here. Noah was righteous. Righteous. 
This word will be a vital word throughout the whole Old Testament and all of the Bible for that matter. Righteous means to be right with God. To be right with God. And I want to be clear here. This text isn't telling us that Noah was perfect or sinless. Far from it, as we'll see later on in the narrative. But Noah is declared righteous. I want us to follow Noah's progression here. I want to remind us of verse 8. Let's read it again. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is where everything begins. Before we learn about a single one of Noah's actions, we're told that Noah found favor. It's the Hebrew word for grace. God's grace, or demerited favor, was actually on Noah. Not because he deserved it. In fact, he didn't deserve it. That's what grace is by definition. Noah, first and foremost, was the recipient of God's grace. Then, Noah is declared righteous by God. Do you see that? I'll let you in on a little secret. Only God can declare someone righteous. Proverbs 21, verse 2. It says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. This is what the Pharisees in the New Testament were like, right? They were righteous in their own eyes. But only God can declare someone righteous. And God declares Noah to be righteous. The question is, why? Why does God declare Noah to be righteous? Well, we don't have to speculate on this one. Let's start with one of the more important texts in all of the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Genesis 15, verse 6. God comes to Abram, and he covenants with him, makes a promise to him. And in verse 6, we read, And he, meaning Abram, he believed the Lord. And he, meaning God, counted it to him As what? Righteousness. Paul in the New Testament builds his whole theology of salvation on this truth in this verse. Go read Galatians 2 and 3. Abram believed or had faith and it was credited or counted to him as righteousness. Now, look at what the author of Hebrews writes. Hebrews 11 verse 7. Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, by faith, Noah, who's in our text, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Do you see that? Noah is declared righteous by faith. Think about this. More than a hundred years passed between God declaring that he would blot out man and the first drops of rain falling. He tells Noah 
make an ark. Took a long time to build that ark. They didn't have power tools. This was a huge ark. How long would you continue to believe God's word without seeing it come to pass? One year? Five years? Ten years? Noah believed God for decades and decades and decades without seeing anything. Relief or rest would come through someone who was righteous, not through corruption and violence. Noah was declared righteous by faith. And what was the fruit of that faith? Obedience. Obedience. Did you notice the repetition in our text today? Just like the word corrupt appears seven times, so does Noah's obedience. Look at 6.22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. 7.5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. 7.9. As God had commanded Noah. 7.16. As God had commanded him. God says jump, and Noah says how high. God says make an ark and do it in this specific way. Noah obeys every step of the way. This is what righteousness looks like, obeying God. How many of you follow all the instructions when you put together Ikea furniture or a Home Depot grill? I remember the first time I put together Christmas presents for the kids. Midnight, night before Christmas. I thought, this looks easy. I don't need to follow the instructions. I can clearly see how this all fits together. Didn't work out too well. Led to a lot of frustration, actually. Not what you should be doing on Christmas Eve. God gives Noah a ton of very, very, very specific instructions. And he follows them all. God did, or Noah did all that God commanded him. Christians, Noah is such a great example for us to follow here. The entire world around him ignored or even mocked him. He just kept on obeying God. One foot in front of the other. This is what Christians do. They obey. Why do they obey? Because they know and love God. Remember 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6? 1 John 2, 3 through 6. John writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him, meaning God, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, But does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, when we disobey God, it's a love problem. We're loving something other than God more than we love him. So why did Noah obey God? Because he loved God. Just like Enoch, Noah 
walked with God. Obedience isn't the the root of our love for God, but it sure is the fruit. Noah was obedient to God in faith, even when he was alone in doing it. Do you see that? And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're the only Christian in your workplace. Maybe you're the only Christian in your school. Maybe you're the only Christian in your neighborhood. There are still parts of the world where someone might be the only Christian within hundreds of miles. Sometimes faith will require you to walk all by yourself. But obedience is the fruit of God's love for you and in you. Let's review Noah's progression here. First, Noah was an undeserving recipient of God's grace. That's point one. Because of that grace, Noah had faith, even when he couldn't see the outcome. That faith was credited to Noah as righteousness. And the fruit of all of that was steadfast obedience. Friends, God sees all of this. He's producing all of this in and through Noah. So point one, God sees. Point two, God saves. God saves. Remember the structure of the text here and the main point. The focus of the text is on Noah's salvation and how to be saved. So amidst corruption and violence and destruction, Noah, by grace, through faith, enters the ark. First, what is this ark? Well, it's the Hebrew word teva, meaning boat or basket. Anyone know the one other place in scripture where this word is used? We might be tempted to think of the Ark of the Covenant, but that's the Hebrew word, Aron. There's one other place in scripture where this word, Teva, or Ark, is used. Exodus 2. Exodus 2. During the time of Moses' birth, Pharaoh had commanded that all of the male Hebrew babies be killed upon birth. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Read along with me. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. If you're reading along in the text, you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh. This son matches the description of what Pharaoh's going to kill. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a what? Basket, teva, made of bulrushes, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. You know the rest of the story. Moses was saved. God then used him to save his people. Moses was very familiar with this word, teva, and uses it to describe the boat 
that would save Noah and his family. This boat is a portrait of salvation. But there's even more color to it, just to make sure we don't miss it. In Exodus 25 through 30, what do we see Moses doing? He's receiving very specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle, where atonement took place. What do we see here in Genesis chapter 6 and 7? We see God giving not Moses, but Noah very specific instructions on what to build. And look in our text what God says. Chapter 6, verse 14. He says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. With pitch. You ready for this? The word here for pitch is the Hebrew word kofer. And it's the root word for atonement. Atonement. This vessel of salvation is covered with something that points toward atonement. What's atonement? In the Old Testament, God made a way for sinners to be made right with him. He made a way for sins to be covered. That's atonement. And it always involves the shedding of blood. Leviticus describes this in detail. Blood sacrifices of animals that would atone for sins committed. So what we have is God's people entering the tabernacle by faith to be saved from God's just wrath. Moses, here in Genesis 6 and 7, is using that language to describe the ark that Noah was commanded to build. So, as we've already seen, the earth was corrupt and violent. Noah is commanded to build this thing. He obeys over a hundred years. Chapter 6, verse 18. God says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God establishes his covenant with Noah. Notice, Noah has three sons. Each of those sons has not two or more, but one wife. There's eight people total going into the ark. The creation mandate of one woman and one man is being maintained amidst the decreation that's about to happen. They build this thing over a hundred years. They gather in all of the animals that God's called them to. They get on the boat. Then, look at chapter 7, verse 10. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Can you imagine this? You've waited over a hundred years. You get on the boat, and God has you wait seven more days. Can you imagine the anticipation? The tension that must have been in the air? Why do you think God has this seven-day pause? Again, 
I believe it's parallel to the seven days that we saw in Genesis 1, where God created everything and then rested. All that he created, he's about to destroy. This is the Bible's first apocalypse. Our text then zooms back out before the action starts. Look at verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, what's Moses telling us? He's telling us that this is a historical narrative. It's not a fable and it's not made up. It isn't just a good moral lesson. It's historical. It happened on a specific date, in a specific month, in a specific year. I'm sure that that date was a date that got passed down through the generations as one to be remembered. It would be like us saying September 11th, 2001. You know what happened on that date, even if you weren't alive then. Now, I know we all know this story of the flood. But before we move forward, I just want you this morning to pause and to try to put yourself mentally in that ark in that moment. You've obeyed God in building the ark. You've gathered all of the animals. You've paused on the boat for seven days. And now, God shuts you in. Over the noise of cattle, sheep, and giraffes, you begin to hear the faint tapping of raindrops on the roof of the ark. Then, raindrops turn into a heavy downpour. Water begins coming from above and below the earth. People outside the ark begin to scream and claw at the boat, begging to be let in. But it's too late. The rain comes. God shuts them in. And the ark holds. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. But the ark holds. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. But the ark holds. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The ark holds. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. But the ark holds. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. By grace... Through faith, Noah and his family were saved from the just judgment and wrath of God. Now, I want us to quickly take a look at two New Testament texts that reference our text here in Genesis. First, Matthew 24, verses 36 through 39. Matthew 24, verses 36 through 39. This is Jesus speaking here. He says, But concerning that day and that hour, meaning his second coming, 
Concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Genesis 6 is the first apocalypse in human history. But Jesus is saying it won't be the last. One day, the Son of Man, Jesus, will come in just judgment on this corrupt and violent earth. If you're here today and you're not a Christian... I'm speaking directly to you in this moment. Every single one of us, every single one of us, you, the person sitting next to you, the person standing behind this pulpit, me, is a sinner. We're all corrupt. Scripture says that because of that, we all deserve death. We all, just like in this text, deserve to be destroyed. In the days of Noah, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. When the rain started falling, it was too late to get on the boat. When Jesus comes, it'll be no different. The moment that that trumpet blows to announce Christ's return... It'll be too late to get on the boat. But here's the truth that I want you to hear. God has made a way for us, like Noah and his family, to be saved before that day. He's created an ark for us. And that ark is the cross of Christ. There's a way of escape for us. There's someone that you must enter by faith. Look with me at one last passage. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. Pay close attention here. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of the dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Understand this. Water, in many places in scripture, is an image of death and judgment. Another connection to Moses, by the way, with the water of the Red Sea killing the Egyptians in the Exodus. Water is an image of death and judgment. 
Do you see what Peter's saying? Water is an image of death and judgment. But for Christians, it's a symbol of washing and being clean. Why? Because Jesus took our death and judgment on himself. It's not water baptism that saves us. It's Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus came to this earth. He lived a perfect life, obeyed God's law in every way, and unlike us, didn't deserve death or judgment. But he willingly chose to go to the cross and die in our place, to shed his blood to atone for our sin. To be saved, you've got to go in the ark. How do you go in the ark? Through repentance and faith. Turning from sin and trusting in Jesus by grace through faith. Believe in Jesus Christ, and the cross will hold. When the storms of life are raging all around you, the cross will hold. When you've hit rock bottom, the cross will hold. When you, like me, deserve death and judgment because of your sin, the cross will hold. There's an ark for all of God's Noahs. Let's pray.